Before I get started, I do want to claim uh, that promise from Jesus that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we shall be witnesses uh, from here to the ends of the earth. Uh, that is true this day, this morning, and at all times as we walk with Jesus. Um, I thought I would start... This is kind of a custom of mine. Get this situated here. Hold on. With a poem. What a surprise, right? But this is from Malcolm Geith's uh, book of poetry on the Psalms called David's Crown. I commend it to you. Um, he writes a prayer kind of in response to each of the Psalms. And he calls it a crown or a corona. I think that's the. Because um, the last line of every poem is the first line of the next one. So it's like one long poem, for the, one long prayer throughout the whole Psalms. And this one is uh, called Quamad um, Modum. Now, if you had an Italian accent and could speak Latin, that would sound a lot better than I said it, but it's called Quamad Modum. It's from Psalm 42. You are my heart's desire from first to last. Like as the heart desires the water brooks, so longs my soul towards you. So I thirst for living streams, not for the dusty books they write about you, nor the empty words that ring from pulpits, nor the haughty looks of those who market you. These are the shards of broken idols. I long for the deep in you that cause the deep in me, the chords that sound the depths and summon me to weep at first with tears of grief and then with tears of joy, that I may sow those tears and reap a timeless harvest, that the ripened ears of grain may shine as clean and clear as gold, shucked of the husk of all my wasted years. Psalm 42. So, since we have talked about, on and off through these sermons, about how the, um, the topics and the passages have been dispensed out to who would preach what, uh, as we sh- you know, share this through the four of us, uh, Buzzy, Brett, Fred, and I, I figured I'd also tell you how I was chosen to address this passage. Uh, this story might be slightly exaggerated or a complete fabrication. (laughs) Anyway, at one of our after-Sunday service prayer gatherings upstairs uh, that the elders and I do, the three of us lined up in front of a huge wall-length and height mirror that we had delivered up to the jury room. Don't ask me how we had that happen. Just believe it. So we lined up side by side and looked at each other in the mirror and started going through the passage topics, agreeing on who would preach on those topics. Who should do blessed are the merciful? Well, that's easy. That should fall to Fred, right? He, he, he just exudes mercy out of his pores. So Fred gets that one. That's easy. Well, what about the divorce passage? That's difficult. That's difficult. So we wanted someone nice and polite but firm. When needed. So we thought Buzzy would be good. He's nice and polite, but he's firm. Buzzy can be firm. But how about the passage on the Lord's Prayer? Well, 
Brett is always talking about our importance of our relationships with God and discipleship and us growing with God. And prayer is a very important part of that life. So it just seemed obvious that Brett should do the passage on the Lord's Prayer. Then we got to the passage on fasting. (laughs) The big tubby dude. He gets that one. He obviously needs it. So we all agreed and I was chosen. As I said, that story might be a slight exaggeration or a complete fabrication. I don't know which. But All right, fasting. So there's nothing like a subject in the Bible that is clearly evident as so far out of reach or seemingly far out of reach uh, sometimes, especially in our church culture uh, than fasting is. Also, it's a subject that sounds about as fun as rolling in glass and being sprayed with lemon juice. It hardly draws a lot of attention, but it is in God's Word. And most especially, it is <laughs> addressed by our rabbi, the, the Lord Jesus. He talks about it, so we, we have to address it. Back in the late 90s, as we approached the new millennia and, and some into the 2000s, there was a movement in the church... And even in the organization that Sarah and I are with, and Steve, Campus Crusade for Christ, on an emphasis on fasting. And that continued into the 2000s. Part of that motivation, which I think was noble, was to beseech God to fulfill his great commission. The proclamation of his gospel to the breadth of the earth, trusting that he would then return uh, when that was done. If you look at later on in Matthew 24, you see this as sort of scriptural evidence of that where Jesus says that this gospel will be preached or proclaimed throughout the world to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, it makes sense that if the gospel gets out to all the nations, okay, we're set up, Lord, the the gospel's to all nations, now you can come. And that's a noble thing. It's a noble exercise, and fasting is part of that beseeching to ask God for the final time, come and do this. So that's, that's noble. Uh, Fasting is also listed as a spiritual discipline in the path a Christian walks with God as a way to cultivate devotion, uh, dependence, and obedience. And again, that's a noble, good, right thing. Uh, We should be cultivating our relationships with God. But we need to put fasting in its proper place in the warp and woof of our pilgrimages as followers of the carpenter from Nazareth, which is why... It is good that we are addressing this passage as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom, uh, God's Kingdom Manifesto. After rolling these three verses through my mind in the last month or so, meditating on them and discussing some of the ideas with my wife and friends, I have learned some things about fasting that have adjusted my thoughts on the practice, deepened my respect, and put me in a place in conviction. I have been woefully weak in my practice of fasting. I think the longest I've ever fasted has been uh, three days without food. Uh, perhaps longer, but see, even there, I don't even remember, so that kind of gives you an idea of what I think of fasting or how I practice it, forgive me, Lord. What I want to do this morning is cover three questions related to fasting uh, and this passage. First, what is fasting? Two, how to fast, or how is Jesus talking about fasting here? And three, where is the gospel in fasting? So, what is fasting? How to fast, where's the gospel? It's a quick way of remembering it. How, or what is fasting? How, where's the gospel? 
What is fasting? It's an interesting question, and um, answering it will influence how we see the subject uh, Jesus brings up here. Fasting is traditionally meant as avoiding the consumption of food for a long period of time for some sort of religious benefit or observance. That's the more traditional uh, kind of definition. In our modern age, fasting has taken on a different definition that isn't that far from the original meaning, but nevertheless, the difference is evident. In our age, it is broadened. Traditionally, fasting only meant food, but today it's applied to more. And I I don't think that's wrong. That has some merit. In the last decades or so, fasting has been used for other things that are prevalent in a person's life, like watching TV. Or today, people fast from interacting with social media. I can't tell you how many times I hear people saying, I took a couple of weeks off of social media and it was brilliant. (laughs) It's like I felt so much happier. Uh, you're, You're fasting from something. It's not food, it's something like that. And the focus of these kinds of fasts in our culture are not always uh, strictly religious, but usually an exercise of personal benefit, which you could argue is actually a religious act, just a religion of one. I do not think that's a bad thing to want to improve your mind, uh, to improve your emotional state, uh, your body, and the acts of these, these kinds of fasting. But I would ask the individuals that do this without any kind of outside benefit to themselves, as all believers should, is to what end? What is the ultimate benefit? Is it only simply to make you a better person? And is that really accomplished? But here in this context, in Matthew 6, Jesus is not talking about that modern version of fasting. He is talking about abstaining from food for a long period of time, for a time. And there are a couple of contexts or influences on Jesus' teaching here that uh, I want to address. One is what was fasting in the Old Testament or Jewish scriptures. Because Jesus said these things in the first century in Israel. And at the time, the Torah and the prophets were being taught and read in the synagogues. His mind would have been drawing from those contexts of, of those teachings. And the second thing is what, the moment itself, Jesus' moment when he's saying that, which I think is a, a truer uh, and best reason for fasting. So the Old Testament context, fast, fasting was usually accompanied by prayer. Is it an accident that right after talking about prayer, Brett uh, spoke on that last week, preached on that last week, right after that, what comes up? Fasting. We usually prayer and fast. When we say that, we do on prayer and fasting. So is that an accident? Did Jesus teach it that way? Probably. Did Matthew put it that way? Probably. And neither of those things are wrong. Fasting was also called for uh, from time to time during designated times. They would, there would be national calls at times. And it was usually associated with some sort of lament for uh, current or past sins or acts of transgression. And they were to beseech God to relent, change his judgment, change his, his he was going to do something if we didn't show repentance through prayer and fasting. Now you see evidence of this kind of fasting in Nehemiah and, and, and David. 
In the first chapter of Nehemiah, you see uh, Nehemiah gets word of the first exilic return to the promised land. He, he has a friend come back and tell him about what's going on. And it, it hurts his soul. <laughs> he feels the weight of his own sin and he feels the weight of the sin of Israel. Um, and you see this in David after his adultery with Bathsheba. After he had essentially Uriah murdered and then Nathan the prophet confronts him. You see this form of fasting. David is told by Nathan that the son conceived and born to him in Bathsheba will, will die. But nevertheless, what does David do? If you read it, David stops eating everything. You know, he changes his clothes and he starts fasting in private on behalf of God, uh, on behalf of the son that God says is going to die. And he still fasts and prays that God would relent from this path, which he doesn't. Don't blame God for that. There are always good reasons for God's actions. Just imagine if that child, boy, that would have been interesting. History would probably have been different during this time. So to mourn and beseech were two main reasons for fasting in the Old Testament. And one commentary I consulted uh, about this, uh, John Goldengay, the theologian, talking about fasting. He mentioned how, and I would love to try and do this, uh, he says, in just about every page of the Bible, there appears some sort of uh, reference to eating. Now, that's not just food eating, but there's also probably other imagery eating there. Just about every page. And how fasting is a very base and elemental part of our lives. It is not, we, we need to eat <laughs> uh, to live. Um, I live to eat, but my wife eats to live. Anyway, um, so that, that says something about this act. If it's so base, it's something that is absolutely essential for us to live, food. Um, but then a feast, here's another connection. A feast was also a reference to a heavenly characteristic. In all, in all cultures, not just the Jewish and Hebrew culture. When you went to heaven, you were going to go to a feast. You see that described. So you have this base thing about it. We need need to live, but it's also connected to heaven. We're all going to feasts. So the act of fasting goes directly to these two things. The base need we have as humans and then the heavenly thing. Of course, the opposite of a feast is no food at all. So fasting is addressing that exact thing. The opposite of a good life, the broken life. That's what fasting kind of images. It's a broken life. I'm mourning something that's broken. But what are we mourning? Nehemiah was mourning Israel's and his disobedience and the impact of the exile. That's, if you read that account, when he's mourning and he prays and he's lamenting their past and current transgressions and his. He's a part of that. Uh, he was imme- uh, so he wasn't just lamenting past acts, but immediate acts in his fasting. So, and here's the other thing about that kind of mourning. You're not just mourning. You get this sense from Nehemiah and even David and when, when we fast. You're not just mourning the immediate moment 
or the thing that you're transgressing or have transgressed in that moment, but you're also mourning the general condition of sin in our lives. We lament the fact that we're all under sin's curse. And fasting is kind of a, an expression of that. I mourn the fact that I might have been unnecessarily angry with my wife or my neighbor, but I'm also mourning at the same time the transgression of the pride of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's something worth lamenting until the day of Christ's return. And so fasting reminds us of that. So the context of Jesus here, as he teaches this somewhere in Galilee in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to remind ourselves exactly who is saying these words as well. Remember, it's a base need. We need to eat food. And it's also an image of going to heaven. And here, out of the very mouth of the eternal Son of God, who started all things, who himself created all things, he states rather clearly that we are to abstain from food from time to time. And that it is an act equal to giving to the needy and prayer. Even as it is right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think the disciples fully understood this until after the resurrection of Pentecost, but that's another sermon. And it seems clear that fasting, according to what Jesus says here, is an act of private devotion to God, not meant for others' eyes. But I'll get to that later. So we have to remember that Old Testament context, the fact that Jesus, the creator of the universe, is actually talking about not eating food for a time, Uh, It connects to our base need for food and then the heavily connection to the feast. And then one last thing, it's kind of an aside. It's also, you know, it's not a big context, but just think about this. This is fascinating. Another kind of characteristic of a context is the gastronomic culture of that time in the first century Israel. Food was not abundant. And you had to work harder for your food at that time. Think about that. Like Jesus, a common carpenter, a farmer or fisherman had to work constantly to acquire food, whether by by growing it or by barter. And first century Jews' work had a more direct connection to their ability or an opportunity to eat than compared to us today. I'm not saying that we don't work for our food here in the 21st century. We do. But our gastronomic culture is one of abundance. Exampled in the size and stock of our grocery stores. Than a first century Palestinian Jew at the time of Jesus. Think about it this way. Put yourself in in the mind of that as a first century Jew. Israelite. How does the word fasting sound in your ear? And then think about how it sounds in the ear of a Western civilian of the 21st century. I don't have answers to that, but that, that's just... Maybe that's why it sounds a little foreign to us at times. Because we live out of a culture of abundance, rather than out of an agrarian culture, out of high need. Or a fishing, a fishing culture. 
So the fasting Jesus is talking about here is fasting of food. And it's closely connected to a person's relationship with God. So that is what is fasting. Now, how do you fast? It seems rather clear that there are three characteristics taught here that show how to fast. There's a when, there's the secrecy of the act, and there is the exhortation to avoid hypocrisy. So when, secrecy, and hypocrisy. Notice Jesus says here in verse 16, when you fast. He does not say if you fast. Dang, why Jesus? Okay, so what's the difference? (laughs) All right, so the difference is this. What if I said to you either of these two phrases? If you leave this room, do such and such. All right, pick an act. Go across the street and buy coffee for mommies. If I said that to you, and then I said, when you leave this room, go to Amelie's and buy coffee. What is the difference? One, you might do the if. You might not leave this room. But the other is there's kind of no choice. When you leave this room, you know, you will do such and such. So the if is maybe you'll do it. The when is you will do it or should do it. I have to say, they have not been very good with the win of fasting. In fact, my fasting has been more character, characteristic of if than when. I don't know about you. Do you, do you fast? Uh, I'm, I'm getting uncomfortable, too, when I think about that. <laughs> I don't think too long, uh, as one of our favorite uh, now, gone with the Lord, professors from Dallas uh, Seminary would say, that's too convicting, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> Second, so that's the uh, when you fast. Uh, when, okay, when, Jesus, I'll do that. Second, in this passage, Jesus uses the phrase, your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret. Let me unpack that a little. First, Jesus says here, to us that this act of fasting is not something for the public. It is to be done in secret, where no one sees or knows. Well, no one on earth, anyway. The Father, our Father, is to be the only audience member of our refraining from food. This makes sense to, because he is the subject of this act of devotion. But I'm fascinated by these phrases of the Father that he is in secret and that he sees in secret. Notice from our previous two passages, the same phraseology is used. When he talks about giving to the needy, he says the phrase, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says that same phrase for praying and fasting. But for praying and fasting, he adds the phrase, your father who is in secret. I think to say that our father is in secret and sees in secret is a wonderful reinforcement of God's presence. Especially when we respond in acts of obedience like fasting. He not only sees as though seen from the outside. No, that's not just that. But he also is in secret. He sees and is there. He's there, and he's, he, that's the reason he sees. In secret, uh, I found out, could also be interpreted as in private. 
God, our Father, is a private God when it comes to certain things. I think this is interesting. It made me think about this characteristic and its contrast to our current culture. Doing some of these things in secret. Our culture seems to have put a high value on perception. How someone or something is perceived or seen. Do we not? I've had conversations, especially in the last decade, about how are you perceived? How are you seen? How are we perceived? So it's something like getting it out on the stage is important to our culture. That's countercultural here, which Jesus is saying in secret. In our culture, is it current? Is it acceptable? Is it public? Do people know? Does everyone know? In a culture that highly values, and I think mistakenly values, raising flags, making sure people know pretty much everything we do, having something that is distinctly secret is countercultural. Think about that. Jesus doesn't care if the public sees fasting. For that matter, he doesn't, see if, doesn't care if it see, they see praying or giving to the needy. Have you thought about that? And here, Jesus is essentially saying there should be no perception of these activities except by God. This point really made me think about how I talk about this with other people. Since our culture likes to list out who they give to or serve, loves to issue public declarations of prayer, how does this secrecy affect how we interact with giving, prayer, and fasting? Things, Jesus says, are to be done in secret. I'm not saying, let me balance that off because there are, there, there's evidence. I'm not saying we shouldn't call people to prayer and fasting. There is scriptural evidence uh, of that. There's of public declarations. But in doing those public declarations, do we consider the exhortation here of God the Son of secrecy in these matters? IG, I'm going to fast today. Instagram, Facebook. Who are you giving to? What do you think of that? Are we doing it for ourselves or truly for God and our relationship with Him? Uh, in the main commentary I've been consulting for uh, these sermons, it was mentioned about these verses, verses that there wasn't a lot of writing on the exercise of fasting after Jesus' resurrection and the church started. This was kind of interesting. I didn't know this. That there, there's very little evidence of any church leaders writing about fasting. That is until like the third or fourth century. 300 years plus after the time of Christ, someone seems to... Now, they could have lost all those writings because there wasn't a lot of that. But I wonder how much it was on the value of keeping things like that on the more secret side of things. We should talk to each other about giving prayer and fast, fasting, but we need to make sure we balance that with the motivation of why we would talk about them. Is it to make ourselves look good or to truly grow with God? Proverbs 13.3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He, open, he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Dang. 
As I was thinking about this point, I realized I could go much deeper, especially related to our culture's high value of marketing and branding. We're intoxicated by people knowing things about us and our organizations. And others are, too. And that leads me to the third thing of how the how of fasting. Not hypocritically. In these verses, Jesus talks about how others have fasted. And he is pretty clear that they are hypocrites. Why? Well, they make themselves appear like they are fasting. Even when they are fasting so that everyone knows they are fasting. And that they are showing devotion to God. Look at me. The prayer, don't be like the hypocrites. I am praying now. That's No, no, you go to the side and you secretly pray to your Father in Heaven. Who sees in secret and is in secret. But Jesus says that that is not the way to actually fast so that everyone sees. In fact, if you do it that way, you've already been rewarded. Empty recognition is your reward. The fasting of the followers of Christ is to be done or are to be done in the opposite way. Look at verse 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others. I looked up the meaning of that word anoint and it has a festive or festal aspect to it. In other words, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, but look festive even as you're fasting. Look happy while doing an act of mourning or gloom. Isn't that crazy? Seems contradictory, but it is completely true to the reality that we live in. We live in a reality as Christians where a feast is waiting for us, imaged here, even as the, pride, the sin of the pride of Adam and Eve rules. Festive, mourning. Fasting, mourning. Looking forward to the feast, giving up. It's connected. Hypocrites look like they are fasting. Followers of the Father of Jesus don't look like they're fasting, and God rewards them. You might ask, isn't this lying? Portraying yourself as not fasting when in fact you are fasting? Isn't this not being authentic? Real? I once heard that the definition of meekness, which was a trait description used of Christ, as having the power to do something and choosing not to do it. What's more humble? Practicing fasting so your reward is from men or from God. So it is a when for fasting, not an if. We are to exercise this practice in secret for the Father, and He will reward us. Incidentally, that word for reward could also be translated and restore, and He will restore you. And we are not to be hypocritical in our act of fasting. Now, finally, where is the gospel in fasting? I've always been impressed. Uh, I, I love the sermons of Charles Spurgeon. And I was always fascinated how he's able to take even the seemingly most obscure passage or phrases from the verses and bring the gospel to it, connect the gospel to it. My pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, was good at this too. So that's always what I'm trying to do that. I don't always succeed probably as well as they would. But I always am trying to find a way. Where's the gospel even in this act in fasting? So where is it? I want to look at some physical evidence and then look at some scriptural evidence. There is physical evidence. It's, it's kind of fascinating. First, 
When I was looking up some of the physical effects of long-term fasting on the body, I saw parallels with redemption. As I was surfing the web, I was half a dozen to a dozen so articles. I was reading further on some and skimming others. It's really, really interesting. I'm like, that's what happens to your body when you're fasting? Wow, that, let me explain this. One of the sites on, on, uh, listed out when a person f- fasts, the effect on the body after certain numbers of hours without food. Like what happens after eight hours, what happens after 12, what happens after 24, what happens after 72 hours. So, and it said this, for example, in the first 24 hours, your body begins to stabilize your blood sugars, burn fat, and your mind begins to clear. After 24 hours of fasting without food, with no caloric intake, the blood sugars are beginning to stabilize, you burn fat, and your mind begins to clear. Now, even though that's cool, I didn't really, and I didn't really know that before, it was not something that I could connect that to the gospel directly. But when I read further to what happens to the body after 24 hours or more without food, it became really interesting. Listen to this. So 24 hours of fasting with no um, caloric intake, you're after 24 hours, your body enters this state called an autophagy. Yeah, yeah autophagy, which apparently in Greek means self-eating. Sounds gross. But what it means is amazing. Here's something I read from one of the site, uh, sites. During autophagy, your cells check all their internal parts. Find anything that's old, damaged, or functioning poorly and replaces them with shiny new versions of themselves. The old parts are recycled into new materials and destroyed. Does that sound at all familiar? Isn't that interesting? Old stuff is discarded, new stuff is put into place. 36 to 48 hours after you start fasting, your muscles begin to grow and repair, repair and grow. So, 24 plus, your body starts going after the old stuff in it. 36 to 48 hours after, your muscles start repairing and you start gaining muscle. 72 hours after starting your fast, without any caloric intake, not even one calorie, your immune system starts the same process of renewal as your body did at 24 hours. It starts renewing itself. In fact, they, they said here they did a study on cancer patients that were doing chemotherapy, and they had a certain group do three days, 72 hours of fasting during the chemo process. And they came out on the other side with much better immune systems than those that did not do the three-day fasts during, in between chemo things. It's really interesting. Isn't it interesting that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about what it means to be in Christ? Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And then in Colossians 3, he writes, But now you must put away all, or put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The gospel is about a dead person coming back to life. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans how we are dead to sin and now alive in Christ. Is it an accident that in a physical act like fasting, an act that is for a Christian a complete dependence on God, it takes the dead, broken, and weakened things in your body and renews them? Is it an accident that the further into the fast you go, it renews the system in your body that fights foreign or destructive things that cause illnesses? That your muscles begin to strengthen. Does this sound like a parallel at all to you? I hope it does. It did to me. Are the benefits of fasting a physical example of a spiritual reality? Something old, sick, or broken, finding renewal when it's, it is dependent on God. Hmm. Well, what about the spiritual evidence? Well, look at the Deuteronomy. That's the physical evidence, the spiritual evidence. Look at the Deuteronomy passage that was read. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I chose this Deuteronomy 8 passage because it is the very passage Jesus used in Matthew 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this passage, Jesus had just completed a 40-day fast or was 40 days into his fast. But it was not for the public, because he did it in the wilderness. The enemy, or the devil, came to tempt him while he was hungry, because at this point, Jesus' body had been fasting so long that it was probable that it was beginning to consume his internal organs, because that's the scientific thing that goes on. The tempter enters when Jesus is most physically hungry and tempts him by saying, make these stones bread so you can eat. Why this was a temptation for Jesus was because the enemy was tempting Jesus with the very same temptation he had deceived Adam and Eve with. Complete dependence on God. Jesus had been led by the Spirit into the wilderness for the, for the fasting and the, and the preparation for his ministry. And being led by God meant Jesus was dependent upon him. Had he listened to the tempter, he would have been saying the very same thing that Adam and Eve said in their act of taking the fruit. I don't need you. Jesus did what Adam and Eve did not do. He resisted the devil, and the devil fled from him. But it goes deeper in this passage. Look at what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That word could also, every word could be also translated, but by all that comes from the mouth of God. 
but by every word. What does the what do the first verses of God, John's gospel say? Verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. What comes from God's mouth? His word. Who is his word? Jesus. Where is the gospel in fasting? Excuse me. When we fast, we are saying we are dependent completely on you, God. Think about it. If God were to say the word, I would hate this in some respect. I love food. (laughs) Were he to say the word, we could live our whole life without food. Do you think it's possible for God to allow us to live even without food? He wouldn't, I don't think he would do that to us. But he could. He's God. Isn't it wild to think about that the act of, fa- of fasting, that in the act of fasting, Jesus did what Adam and Eve couldn't. And Adam and Eve, just realize this, Adam and Eve were living in a gastronomic culture of abundance. <laughs> they were living in the garden. They had all the food they could have ever wanted. Jesus was living in a gastronomical moment of complete need. His body started to hunger. Oh, wow. So Jesus resisted the devil in a weaker place than Adam and Eve did. (laughs) The tempter entered Adam and Eve in the garden when they were at the height of their abundance. Their grocery stores were fully stocked and fully abundant. And he took them down. And we are in this condition now. He enters with Jesus when Jesus is hungry. And Jesus still resists him. Wow, he's Superman. Brothers and sisters, I suggest you consider inserting fasting into your life with God. If you need to talk about it, that's fine. But remember Jesus' admonishment about secrecy, as you do. Sarah and I have started talking about and putting, uh, start considering putting this act into our lives in small ways to start with. And I personally want to increase it appropriately. If you have unique physical conditions, you might want to consult your physicians before you decide to do this. But don't dismiss it out of hand. Jesus said, when you fast. While doing this uh, research, I came across a chef saying that says, hunger is the best sauce. As the deer pants for water. Chefs, of course, are talking about food in that quote. And I'm glad for it because a feast is made for laughter, as Ecclesiastes says. 
But as Jesus said just earlier in this sermon, in chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Our hunger and thirst for righteousness has been satisfied in Christ when he said it is finished. And we remember that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup. For those who don't know Christ, what are you dependent on? Certainly food. You'd die without it. But what would be merely but that would be merely a physical death. Have you thought about the greater death? The death of your soul, of your spirit. For that you only need the Word of God. To feed you. Every word that comes from the very mouth of God. He's waiting for you. Jesus says this in Revelation 3 when he says he's standing at the door. uh, Knocking, waiting for you to open. So that what? (laughs) He can come in and feast with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much uh, for your word. I confess, I confess, Lord, that I've not been very good with this dependence upon you. And I pray for me on behalf of my brothers and sisters here that you would help us follow your word your ways in that we do not live on bread alone. Give us wisdom when it comes to fasting. Give us the strength to when fast and not if fasting. And uh, help us to know how to help each other while keeping it secret, Father. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.